0: Why don't we all turn to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, Lord, we pray for the next hour or so that we can share with our hearts and open ourselves up, Lord, to be maybe even healed from some expectations that we've had of what you will do in our lives and maybe we've misconstrued. We thank you for Uh, The time that the sisters have spent already, personally knowing, Lord, that you have brought them through and continue to bring them through things in even their own personal lives. Pray, Lord, that we can be here in this place, that we can share, that we can open up to each other. And we thank you, Lord, for the time that we can spend here at Eastern Camp, knowing your spirit has moved. And we have confidence to know that it will continue to move in our lives. Thank you for that, Father. We do pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.
1: Thank you all for coming today. Um, as you can see, the title of our forum, Finding God's Purpose Through Adversity and Unmet Expectations, it's something that every one of us will face, inevitably. So, for those of you who don't know us, my name is Vanessa Taba. Next to me, Stephanie Taba. We're both from Windsor, and we were asked to um, do a forum that uh, incorporates our own personal testimonies of certain things that God has done miraculously in our lives, because a lot of this transcends both my life and Stephanie's, and hopefully all of you will walk away with a greater sense of God's plan for you and what he's already doing in your life. So today... We're not going to have a one-size-fits-all answer, it's just not that simple, but what we hope is that you have a greater understanding of our Father's heart, and how He really feels towards us, what His intentions are for us and for our lives. So, to get started, all of us have hopes and dreams. We are young, when I, I know when I was young, I will speak from my own personal experience, I never anticipated adversity in my life. When I was young, I had specific dreams. I knew I was going to graduate from high school. I was going to go to university and get my degree, probably have a family, maybe a few kids. Um, I would love to then have a flourishing career, balancing my career, Uh, maybe taking some time off to raise my family, probably grow old with my husband, and, you know, we would ride off into the sunset together. (laughs) However, life doesn't always pan out as we expected. And that's what we're gonna get into today.
2: So Steph, why don't you share a few dreams that you had? I mean, similarly, I thought, okay, I'm I was praying that God would bless me with a husband, that we would have a family, you know, four or five kids. I'd, you know, really nicely juggle my family, my kids, church, everything, and it would just really work out nicely, and I didn't put in that picture, the trials that would come. I don't think I didn't think there would be any, just not to the degree that they came. So if you can help us out, throw out some of those unmet expectations or those adversities that come our way. Just name some if you can. Children.
3: Children.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Not having children, absolutely. Children are more ill. Absolutely. Sick children. Sick children. Job loss. Absolutely, job loss. Um, We have quite a few. We do. To give you a few examples. Many that you shared and a few more. Struggles with singlehood, rebellious children, financial struggles. Um, The list can be endless, really. Um, What may be troubling for me, maybe different for someone else, what are some of the feelings associated when these adversities come or these expectations that we're waiting for don't pan out? Like in Proverbs 13, it says, hope deferred, make it the heart sick. Sometimes just not getting what you're expecting to get becomes the adversity. So what are the feelings that are associated with these situations? Anxiety. Anxiety? Just shout a, alone. You're alone, depression. anger, depression. depression, absolutely, defeat, defeat. <coughs> <coughs> why me, yeah, doubts, forsaken. forsaken, absolutely. Again, the list can be endless. Here's, sorry, I'm not used to this microphone. Here's a number of the ones we came up with, and there are so many. Um, at this point, Vanessa's going to share a little bit of her testimony. Okay, so as you can see up here, we have
1: everything from feelings of being helpless, overwhelmed, resentment, loneliness, worry, embarrassment, frustration. These are all feelings that are common throughout uh, many of the trials that we go through. You're not going to hear my entire testimony right now, but you're going to hear a lead-up to it to lay a little bit of groundwork. Basically, um, to give you a little bit of background about myself, I graduated like most kids do from high school, got my degree, and then I went to work. I worked for a very large brokerage, but shortly after I got hired there, I knew that I was going to be moving on within maybe a couple years. What I didn't expect was that I would end up going back to school rather than moving on to a new job. Um, Basically, I knew in my heart of hearts that Teachers College is where I was gonna be headed. Um, I had my degree underneath my belt, so I ended up applying to teachers' college in my upper twenties, and doing a complete 180. So from going to working in the insurance industry, now I'm going into teaching. So first unexpected uh, turn in my life was I did not I did not envision myself in my upper twenties being a full-time student again, but I knew in my heart of hearts, through much prayer, that God was leading me to become a teacher an elementary school teacher. So I graduated, and then, thank God, I got hired by the public school board, very large public school board. I thought, perfect, things are going along just as I needed them to go. It was very difficult to get into this school board. Competition is still stiff. And they hired me as a supply to teach many different schools. Over 30 different schools could uh, you know, have a need of supply. I can teach at any one of them on any given day. So I happened to, while I was supply teaching, be in a particular school one day where I was teaching a grade 6 class, an incredibly difficult grade 6 class. Because I persevered through that, um, the principal took notice of me. I thought, perfect, this is what I need. I need to build relationships here. My career is going to take off. So this principal, as it turns out, needed me to take over this class for several weeks because the teacher became unexpectedly ill. So in spite of this stress, I knew that surely there was a greater good that was going to come out of this. This principal then tells me, I would like to keep you on for the rest of the school year. She made a phone call to the school board. Unfortunately, I also happen to be part of a very powerful teachers union. And this union is here to look out for us, but sometimes it can also impede us. So this union um, that I'm a part of, they are incredibly supportive, but the school board did not want to allow me to stay in this school because they were afraid of what the teachers' union would say. I'm a new graduate. They were afraid that there would be complaints from teachers with more experience who wanted that position. I continued then to supply like normal. One day, I found myself back in her school teaching a different grade, and she approached me. This was several months later. And she said, Vanessa, when are you going to be off your probationary period and free for hire? I have put in two more requests to the board for you to get you into my school. Both times, they've denied me. And uh, I told her, well, I'm not quite off my probationary period. Give me another month and a half, and I'm all yours. Perfect. So after this month and a half passes, I was teaching, and I thought, okay, great, I'm on track. I am going to be ready to be hired. Little did I know that about six to eight weeks later, I'm teaching in a kindergarten class in a small town. I felt a little funny that day. It was a typical day. The class was wonderful. I felt some pressure in my head. So not thinking much of it, I was rather annoyed, actually. I came home and said, that's it. I'm just going to go to a walk-in clinic. And I went to this walk-in clinic after this after-hours walk-in clinic, And the doctor took one look at me And she started writing something on a pad of paper Scribbling a little bit frantically I didn't think anything of it I told her, well, I hope it's not a blood clot And so she starts scribbling And she hands me this paper And she says, I would like you to go to the ER The emergency room And I want you to hand this to the emergency room doctor But she didn't explain what it was And I couldn't read her writing (laughs) So (laughs) I'm driving along Still not thinking too much about this. I thought, okay, I probably need an x-ray. They just need to look at me a little further. It's going to be fine. So I get to the emergency room. I hand it in to the triage nurse. I said, can you hand this over to whoever is in charge in the ER here? He looks at it. No problem. He immediately passed it on to a doctor. Very shortly, they called me in, and they asked me how I was feeling. I told them I have a lot of pressure in my head. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, Maybe it's just a little bit of stress, although I hadn't had a stressful day. And so they said, we want to do a few tests. We're just going to start with a basic x-ray. Perfect. Routine. So they did some blood work. They sent me in for an x-ray. They did a chest x-ray and uh, left it at that. So I'm waiting by myself. My family's at home. I'm alone in the ER. And the doctor comes out, and he says, how are you feeling And I'm sitting in a little waiting room. I said, Well, I'm feeling okay. And he goes, Well, you're going to be here for a little while longer. He's like, We found something. And at that moment, it's hard to know what to think when they tell you they found something on an x ray. I thought I would crumble. And at that moment, I didn't have time to utter a prayer. I simply felt completely calm. All I could tell him was, Okay. I remember a gentleman and his wife sitting across from me and he said, Wow, you took that, (laughs) coolly." I had no idea what they had found. I just noticed that doctors started to scramble. I noticed some were making phone calls to our other hospital uh, wanting to get in touch with specialists. So I started to wonder. Still alone, my parents and my entire family, still completely unaware, I thought, Okay. Now might be a good time to let them know I'm not coming home. <clears throat> so I made a phone call to my mother. She offered to come in. I told her, it's okay. You don't have to come in yet. I'm not even sure what they found. As it turns out, a few doctors sat me down, and there, or actually one in particular sat me down, and he said, Vanessa, we noticed that uh, there's a growth in your chest. It looks like a tumor, and it's not small. And so he said, we're going to send you for a CT scan to get a better look at it. We need to see what we're dealing with. So <clears throat> CT scans, which normally take a very long time to get into, they had me in immediately. It felt surreal. Feelings of, I didn't really have much time to feel any of these things. I actually couldn't believe I was there at such a young age. I remember staring at the details In the hospital, just staring at my surroundings, wondering how it is that I even got there. So they put me through the machine that evening and told me it is most definitely a tumor. And by the looks of it, it's inoperable. We will not be able to operate and take this out. It's below your rib cage, And we would do more damage than good. At that point, my mother shows up at the hospital. And um, I break the news to her. So that, for me, was the start of what would become an incredibly trying journey. At a moment when I thought that I was on my way to start my teaching career, I had a wonderful relationship with this principal, suddenly I wondered if I would um, live to see the day that I could even think about my career again. So I wasn't sure what they were going to do. They told me they needed to take a biopsy of this and see what's going on, and that I would have to go through a bit of a waiting period while they figured out what it was that was going on inside of me.
2: So our journey started in 2007, I found out I was pregnant with our third child, we were very excited, we had two beautiful healthy children, and I thought, wonderful, thank you Lord, you know, we were, we were happy, everything went quite smoothly, um, nothing out of the ordinary except for morning sickness. Um, and so I was a little bit surprised when, at my 36-week OB appointment, the doctor says, you have very high blood pressure. I thought, okay. He says, I'm going to keep you here for a few hours. Let's see what happens. I mean, I, I, I worried a little bit. I thought, okay. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. Couldn't call anyone. I, so I thought, you know what? It's going to be fine. I prayed. I just thought, you know, calm down. It'll be Okay. So after a few hours, the doctor says, you know what, I'm going to send you home, but please take it easy. Don't do much. Um, But if you feel anything out of the ordinary, dizziness, see white spots, just feel out of the ordinary, please come back to the hospital. So four or five days later, I really did rest a lot. My in-laws were um, with us from Germany, and my mother-in-law did everything. Um, So... I thought, I'm doing what the doctor says, and it happened to be a Monday morning, and I woke up, and I just didn't feel right. And then I started seeing white spots, and I could barely walk, and I thought, this is not good. called Eric at work, and I said, I think I should go to the hospital. So he says, okay, I'm going to come pick you up, we're going to go. So we went, packed a little bag just in case, and good thing, because my blood pressure was through the roof, and they said, you're you're having this baby today. I thought, okay, (laughs) it's a little early, but yay. Um, we were excited, and I thought, okay, God will provide, this, this is going to be all right. And so we, we called a few people, family, friends, and just told the situation, asked them to pray for us, and um, by early evening, they had induced me, and honestly, under the circumstances, things went quite well. Um, I was hooked up to fetal monitors, on IV, I was on mag sulfate which was to help with the blood pressure issue because the highest reading I remember it was 218 over like 110 ish and so the mag sulfate was to protect me and the baby through the stress of birth. The problem was I had to be on it for 24 hours and for me that was worse than giving birth. I couldn't get out of bed, I was very out of it, weak. So when Luke was born, um, everything seemed fine, they let me nurse him, and they said, standard protocol, he goes to the NICU for babysitting, and I just had to recover. So since it was around midnight, I said, Eric, why don't you go home? There's no use for you to be uncomfortable to sleep here. I'm being taken care of, I was at high risk, they were monitoring me constantly. The baby's gonna be fine, come back in the morning. He didn't have a problem with that, so <laughs> off he went. I struggled through the night just because of the medication. I I was in and out. Um, So when he came back in the morning, nice and refreshed, you know, I said, it dawned on me. I said, Eric, they haven't brought Luke back for me to feed him. I think that's kind of weird. I said, why don't you go get him? He says, no problem. So off he goes, and um, I didn't know what I was sending him to find. So he goes, gets um, buzzed into the NICU, and... He says, they ask who he's there for, and he says, the tuba baby. No problem, Luke is fifth pod, first section. Okay, and if you've never been in a NICU, that's a good thing, but it's very surreal walking through a NICU and, and realizing these little babies are fighting for their lives, and they're sick, and it's just, it hits you, like, wow. But he thinks he's picking up his healthy baby that was just being babysat, so... He gets to pod five and sees four isolates with babies that are clearly not well and he sees the first section and he says oh this is not my baby and the nurse there's a nurse for every pod and the nurse realizes oh you know he's there and, he's, and she says which baby are you here for and he says luke tuba and she says sir this is your baby and i can only imagine that moment um, of her realization that this man doesn't know his baby's sick. And his um, realization, "Wow, what happened? Twelve hours ago, I had this seemingly healthy baby, and now there was more wires than baby. So she tried to explain what happened, and apparently, at some point in the night, a nurse had walked by the crib he was in, and she noticed he wasn't breathing and he was turning blue. So they immediately attended to him and realized that he had a spontaneous pneumothorax. His lung collapsed. And he couldn't breathe on his own. Um, So they put him on a CPAP. um, They started NG um, tube feeding, medications. But they weren't sure why this happened and how this would turn out. So he sat down in the rocking chair beside Luke's isolate, and he just looked at him and just tried to digest this new reality. And he says he sat there for a long time, trying to wrap his head around this. And I didn't realize because I was still not quite with it. And so eventually he came back and I kind of realized he doesn't have the baby. And he says, well, Steph, he's having a little trouble breathing, but, you know, they're helping him. And so I said, okay. I was a little bit, like I said, (laughs) it was the medication. And so somehow we got through the day and so... My 24 hours were up, and they were going to move me out of high risk and into a regular room. And so the nurse says, Do you want to go see Luke? And I'm like, Oh, yeah, let's go see him. And I wasn't prepared um, for what I would see. Um, and yet, I didn't, like, there was no emotional, like, I wasn't crying. I just thought, Wow, well, there's my baby. They let me touch him through the armholes. And then the nurse says, you should go get some rest. So they took me to my room. And again, I told Eric, just go home and sleep. Go see the other kids. I'll be fine. So that's kind of when it started to hit me. Here I am in this hospital room. We were supposed to be excited. And I'm by myself. I don't have a baby in my arms. And I just remember looking around the room and thinking, what is happening? Like, God. (laughs) And... It's kind of shameful to say I couldn't even pray. I didn't even know what to pray if I could have, I guess. Somehow I fell asleep. The next day, Eric came back, and we were to meet the doctor from the NICU. So we did, and he nothing had changed with Luke. Um, He wanted to get our history, talk about our other kids, find out about my pregnancies, Luke's particularly. And then, so we went through all that, and then he says, Caleb, Noah, Luke. He says, can I assume, he says, these are faithful men of God. Can I assume you're a family that believes in the true God? And that's when I started like crying. I'm like, I could just nod and look at him. And he says, well, I believe too. And he says, I will do my best medically to help your son. He says, but I just want you to pray. And it was encouraging. I thought, okay, I have to pray. And he says, God will work a miracle. Just pray. So a few days passed. In the meantime, Eric sent out an email asking for prayer support, explaining what was going on. Um, I had to stay in the hospital longer because of my blood pressure issues. Um, And we're so thankful that almost immediately people started emailing us back, that they were praying for us, that you know, they were praying for Luke. And I remember Eric showing me one in particular. I didn't even know this person. It was kind of through a relative of a friend. Of, and I thought, wow, a perfect stranger is praying for my son that he doesn't even know. And that's when God's Holy Spirit really spoke to me. and says, if you can't pray, others are praying for you. And that was very encouraging. So God saw fit to answer those prayers. And a few days later, um, when they tried to take Luke off the CPAP, he was able to breathe on his own, and slowly but surely um, he started improving. Uh, they needed to get him to eat. that took a few days, but the following week, we were able to take him home, and we were rejoicing. Uh, we had come to a point where we thought, well, if God sees that it 's better for him not to live we you know we thought we had accepted that, but when the alternative happened we were really joyous that God suffered to allow this baby to come home to us so as I just I was so thankful we were home I just wanted things to go to, back to normal I just wanted to have this little baby at home and the boys were excited for the new brother and things seemed to be going all right but Luke was a difficult baby he didn't eat well Um, And at first I just thought, well, he's a baby Babies, I thought he was very colicky We thought, you know, reflux We tried some medications I thought, okay, it's going to pass We were planning a trip to Europe Eric had six weeks of parental leave We thought, let's spend some time with his family And we were excited about that That was September And just before we switched to leave We thought, let's go to Kitchener for Ontario Sing. That'll be nice So we go and I was in the foyer with the three boys and Luke was sleeping in my arms and about halfway through service, I felt him shaking. So I kind of looked down and I've never seen a seizure in real life. But that moment, I didn't know, but I knew that he was having a seizure. And so I kind of tried to protect him with the blanket I had. I thought, I don't want people to see this. And so... I'm just waiting for it to pass, and I'm thinking, be finished, be finished. So finally it ended, and then he just started screaming, this scream that I can't, e- can't even describe to you. And I just, I looked at my cousin and said, watch the boys. I just ran. I thought I've got to do something with this baby. I've got to stop him from crying. So after services, we talked to Sister Linda Yon, who's a nurse. We, I described what happened, and she says, it sounds like a seizure. We spent the rest of the day in the hospital just to check, get him checked out, Unfortunately, it wasn't a children's hospital, and they said some of his blood work looks off, but you should see a pediatrician. Well, we had started to worry because two days later, we're supposed to fly to Germany. And I thought, what is going on? So we saw our pediatrician the next day, thankfully, and she realized his newborn screening had been missed because of the NICU experience. Um, so she sent us her blood work, and she says, you know what, every kid can have one seizure in their life didn't seem to be febrile but she said you know what for precaution's sake we're going to book some tests but don't stay in windsor thinking this is going to happen in the next couple weeks go if you want this we'll do these tests when you get back so we went and unfortunately once we got there luke started um having seizures every four or five days and he was six months by then and we just had to face the fact that he wasn't developing and that something was wrong with him more than just that he was a fussy baby. And we enjoyed our time there, but it was reality was slowly sinking in that there's something more here. And so you see that both Vanessa and I were at that point that this adversity was looking us in the face, and we both had a choice to make. Were we going to trust God, or were we going to despair? And I really love this quote by... Um, Cara Freeman If you know she's had struggles medically And this is what she writes When adversity strikes we have two choices We can choose to blame God for it Or we can allow him to refine us And make us tender toward him So
1: What we have then We have a question and it, uh, we have many questions, and it, what we want to know is what might you ask yourself, what might you ask God, what might you ask others? We have questions for everyone when adversity strikes. So, before we put up a few, that we have shout a few out. If you can think of something, what are some questions you might ask when you are suddenly confronted with the unexpected? What might you wonder? What might go through your head? What might you ask God? Why me? Why me? Excellent. Why not me? Good. I'll oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? Why now? Mm-hmm. What, is the of all this? what is the purpose of all this? Good. Will it be better? Absolutely. Will this get better? You got most of our points. You did. Why um, me? Why now? Why this? What is the benefit of this? Why do my loved ones have to go through this too? Big one, for many of us, is this my fault? Is God punishing me? Very common. So these are things that we all, that go through all of our heads when we are confronted with something that we didn't expect. So, um, right now what we're going to do is uh, we'll go on to another question. These are not all going to be answered, by the way. These will hopefully come out in our testimonies because our testimonies are not done. How does God help us work through these difficult situations, and handle unmet expectations. We're both at a crossroads here where our expectations for how we thought our life would pan out is suddenly completely um, gone. What we thought we knew, we don't know. And so, what you're going to hear is um, a little bit of the testimony uh, from each one of us about the continuation of what we're going to be, um, of how God worked in our life. So what I'm going to do is, I'm taking you back to the point where I was in the hospital, they told me, okay, we took a biopsy, you're gonna have to wait, go home. I was waiting and I'd convinced myself that what they found, this tumor in my chest, was gonna be a benign tumor, for sure. This was just a little blip, somehow they were gonna get rid of it, it was not gonna be a big deal. My heart sank a little when they told me their top three suspicions, all of which were a form of cancer. So I remember lying in the bed, and they said, all right, um, you're just going to have to go home, and we'll, we'll let you know once we find out what it is that we're looking at. So I went home. They told me that I would hear back probably in about four or five days. Six or seven days passed, and I hadn't heard back from them. Finally, one day... uh, In the evening, I started to have trouble breathing, and I noticed that I was actually swelling. My entire chest, my neck, my face was starting to swell, and I felt like I was having an anaphylactic reaction. I couldn't breathe, and I didn't know why. I immediately had my mother drive me to the ER. They took one look at me, sent me straight into a room where they started administering steroids and a few medications to help my body settle down and help me breathe again. As it turns out, the ER doctor in charge happened to glance at my paperwork, and he goes, oh, Vanessa, he's like, I just noticed here that your results came back. Would you like to know them? He's like, I can tell you, but I won't go into detail. I thought, yes, please. (laughs) So he, I was bracing myself, and in my heart of hearts, I had a sinking feeling, and I don't know why. But I'm lying in the bed, and he, my mother's with me, because she had to drive me. And he says, "You have a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma," and I remember gasping for a minute, thinking, "No!" But I didn't even know. Like Steph, I I didn't know what to pray. There were no words in my mind at that moment. At that moment, all I could think was, "I can't believe this is happening." And he said, um, "We're going to have to have some doctors speak to you a little bit more on this," and. Uh, but I want you to know that it is indeed a type of cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So for the rest of the evening, I spent my night in the ER while doctors again made some frantic calls because I didn't know the specifics. There are, as I now know, countless types of cancers out there, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, even under that, there are many different subtypes. I find myself then speaking to a chemotherapy specialist who says, Hi, I'm going to be your doctor. I'm going to be overseeing your chemotherapy regimen. Again, I had just gotten a cancer diagnosis, but did not expect to hear that I was going through chemotherapy. I don't know why. I was just hoping I could go home and get better. Um, In my heart of hearts, I knew that I would have to do something. So she sat me down and she said, Vanessa, there are different types of cancers. Some are slow-growing, some are aggressive. Yours is aggressive. So... I had an aggressive growing type of cancer. I had no time to decide what I was going to do. This was so far out of my hands. At this point, my aunt had put out an email letting people know that I had a tumor and um, that I was going to need people's prayers. And I can assure you on my end that I felt those prayers because I myself was not able to utter a single word. So within 48 hours, the first 48 hours, they were pumping me full of medications. I can't even describe all of them. All of them were to prevent my body from being um, completely overcome by the chemotherapy. Uh, these medications were there to protect me. I'm young, so they said, uh, we want to give you the best chance possible of bouncing back after chemotherapy. So I had a million different medications to uh, Keep me as healthy as possible so that the chemotherapy, as it attacked my entire body, um, that the rest of my organs would still be intact, and that as little as po- I would suffer as little as possible. Normally, with, ke- uh, with cancer, there are cases where, you know, you come back in a week, they'll start your regimen. They didn't have time. Time was not apparently on my side. So they had me booked for a bunch of different tests in the meantime as well. Uh, so she started me within, 40, uh, within 48 hours. I was on my first round of chemotherapy. I just found out that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now I was starting chemotherapy. She also warned me my hair would fall out, all of it. Being a girl it's a precious commodity. So a couple things to grapple here with. And uh, I remember them telling me, too, they said, Vanessa... This uh, chemotherapy, it's brand new. You're only the second person uh, that we've ever treated with this. So I was also a guinea pig. (laughs) And uh, they said, it's not like other chemotherapies. This chemotherapy is actually five days around the clock. We have to admit you to the hospital. You can't come in like the rest of our patients, just get your treatment for four, six, or eight hours. You're in for five days straight, and the drip is going to be going. I had to go through five or six different bags for one round. So it took five days to go through me. And I remember in that time, slowly, just trusting and thinking, okay, I could feel the prayers of those, pe- of, of those people who were praying for me. It's hard to describe. Um, I often would haphazardly, prior to my diagnosis, utter a prayer to God, and sometimes I would even wonder, did he even hear me? I don't know if I even... I, I felt so insincere sometimes. The smallest prayer is heard by God, and I now know that because of so many people out there, many of you in here, who were praying for me, that God did hear. And so at that point, all I could pray, because I didn't know what was happening to me, was, God, you're going to have to speak through other people because I don't know what to ask you for. I don't know who can help me. I don't know anything. I don't know if I'm going to live. The doctors just encouraged me, And they told me, Vanessa, keep a positive attitude. Your attitude is half the battle. And I remember, unexpectedly then, as I'm lying in bed, begging God to just speak to me, comfort me, in walks my family doctor out of the blue. And he just sits down next to my bed and asks how I'm doing. Apparently not so good, I told him. (laughs) He then congratulated me on going from his most boring patient to his most interesting overnight. (laughs) So I thought, well, that's not exactly the type of award I was hoping for. And he said, well, you know, I just want you to know that I'm going to be in constant contact with your doctor who's overseeing your chemotherapy. And um, if you ever have any concerns, you can always come to me too, which I really appreciated. He started to walk out the door, and then he stopped short, and he just stopped at the end of my bed, looked back, and said, you know what, he goes, I think we don't use the word cure enough in cancer. He said, we're afraid of that word. When we hear cancer, we're afraid to use the word cure. But he said, I know, I've seen. He happens to be a doctor who's studied cancer a lot, many different types of cancer. He's also involved in cancer prevention. And he said, I've seen people who have had that cancer diagnosis. He's like, they can come through this. I've seen them come back full circle with even less of a chance of ever getting that cancer again than someone who's never had it, which I found hard to believe, but he reassured me. Cures can happen and do happen. God also spoke through many nurses. Many people come through your door when you have cancer because they're constantly checking. They're worried about your mental state. They don't want you to get too far down. I remember one nurse handing me a pillow and saying, I've seen so many people drop to the floor and scream. If you need to scream into this pillow at any time, just do it. We would completely understand. And I told her, I said, well, would it change my situation? I don't think so. And both myself and my parents assured the doctors I had identified myself on my chart as being a Christian, and I assured her, I said, Look, I have people praying for me. I know that that's the only thing that can change this situation. And already God was dropping people into my life to encourage me, to speak to me, out of the blue. Just give me those words to bolster me, because I had a very long road ahead of me. And so I went through my chemotherapy regimens, and what I couldn't believe was the outpouring of support, the emails, the cards, the words of encouragement that many of you sent, every one of them was read and they were felt probably far more than any of you will ever know. And uh, so, a couple of things that always struck me were I would go home and, you know, it was just a constant flood of cars, a constant. Um, you know, never ending emails, and I always felt God working through every one of you. At times when I was down, it was amazing how God would use one of your cards or someone's kind words to pick me up. You had no idea, but it was constant. And the chemotherapy was incredibly difficult, as the doctors warned that it would be. Um, after my first week, I went home, and sure enough, I mean, already the chemotherapy started to wreak havoc on my body. I went home. I had, previous to this, been completely healthy, had never been on medication. And I had a list of ten that I had to go fill at a pharmacy, each one of them having a specific time of day so that I had to take it at. I felt completely overwhelmed. I remember driving and feeling numb in the car with my mother. She, it was hard to see her and... My whole family, my father, my relatives, it was just, it was hard because I knew I wasn't in this alone. But it's hard when these things happen and you're so young and you know that this is not how anyone wants to see you and I don't want anyone to see me like this. But I knew at that moment that I would have to make a decision that God was either going to be glorified by this or people were going to look at her and say, wow, with that bad attitude. That's the God she serves. I don't want to serve that God, whoever he is. So I knew that however I handled this situation, people were going to walk away with an impression of the God I served. And it was either going to be a good one or a really bad one. So every chemotherapy session or regimen after each one, it seemed to bring in new complications. I ended up with severe migraines. My body, after every chemotherapy session would ache all over. I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. It was basically like the achy body flu, plus a migraine, among many other symptoms. And in spite of all the difficulties, what amazed me is that all of you were relentless in your support, in your prayers. They never stopped, and in my heart of hearts, I knew that God had a greater purpose for this. So different things happened, the friends who paid me visits, the friends who brought me meals. Um, Unexpectedly on my birthday, I had a surprise birthday party. I happened to be going through chemotherapy. And ironically, I was receiving my chemotherapy treatment in the same hospital I was born in. It felt very strange. And I was blessed to have an amazing group of friends come by and absolutely make my day. And... With Bible studies, with other people that came in to support me. It was just amazing how God put everything into place for me. And I ended up having to go through seven rounds of this chemo regimen. So I would have chemotherapy, two weeks off, back for another round of chemotherapy, two more weeks off, back for another round. I went through seven rounds. And in the fall, the doctor came up to me. Oh, they had also, I should say, prior to that done bone marrow biopsies. Everything, thank God, came back looking normal. They were pretty certain that the cancer was isolated in the tumor. In the fall, kind of like the day of reckoning, they said, Okay, Vanessa, we're going to send you for a PET scan. And this is going to tell us whether or not the chemotherapy regimen you were on worked. Previous scans throughout my um, treatment had shown that the tumor was shrinking, but they needed to know that everything was completely gone. So I went for my PET scan, had to wait a couple days, went back in, and my oncologist came in with the news, and she said, you are completely clear. It was an amazing feeling, almost surreal. She was overjoyed, um, She also, like, was incredibly supportive. She happens to be, um, I know this because her husband, ironically, was one of my professors in teacher's college. And now she was treating me for cancer a year later, or two years later. Um, It's ironic how that works. But um, she was incredibly overjoyed, and she was incredibly supportive. And she said, Vanessa, you're basically, most likely, done. If we can whack this out, it is probably going to be whacked out for good. The cure rate or the, um, as she put it, uh, just the likelihood of this coming back is incredibly low to the point where I'm probably likely to get something else before I would ever get this again. She can't make promises, but that's statistically what is most likely. And what was so incredible was follow-up scans. I continued to have a few worries. You can't break free of the mindset of fighting for your life. Um, so quickly so I went home and started to wonder I know what she said but what if certain things happen and you know I start to get the symptoms back I started to struggle with a few fears Um, a lot of those questions I wondered like God where are you in all of this I know you healed me this is amazing but how do I break free of this mindset how do I just live with live fearlessly and just trusting in you it was incredibly hard Again, I prayed. I said, God, I just need you to speak through the doctors. I need you to speak through someone. Talk to me. On a follow-up visit, my oncologist, after they had done a bone scan, which also revealed that everything was completely clear, she sat me down and she said, Vanessa, I don't say this to every patient. In fact, I don't say it to most of them. But she said, if you even have symptoms down the road, I will tell you right now that it's not cancer. She's like, you're done. You need to just move on. And my family doctor also reiterated that it would probably be best to, um, it's up to me, but I have to decide in how much of that shadow I want to live. And I decided I only want to um, live in the shadow of God, under his wing. And so God brought me through what could have been, or God brought me through what was an incredibly difficult time, and it was just amazing to see how he worked how he healed me, the fact that they caught this just in time. I should also note that the other doctors in the hospital commented that what I was getting, I didn't know this earlier, was a new drug that had a 100% success rate in clinical trials. And my family doctor said, Vanessa, I can't believe the irony of the fact that this came out right as you had your diagnosis. And he said, this regimen was actually designed for your exact type of lymphoma, and for, specifically for tumors under the rib cage, exactly like yours. He's like, the timing is impeccable. And I told him, no, I know exactly who provided that. He knows I'm a Christian, and he knows exactly to whom I was thankful. So years in the making, I have a profound respect now for medical researchers. Years in the making, they had no idea that they were going to come up with a drug 10 years previous to this that was going to eventually save my life. And that is my story of how God healed me, not through doctors, but also through the incredible prayers of all
2: of you. So, our story continues. We get home from Europe, and I know we have some appointments to meet with Luke and get an MRI and EEG. Seizures continued. Um, I thought I was ready for it. Um, So, we met with a neurologist for his seizures. We were thankful that just a few months before, Windsor got its first pediatric neurologist. Again, I don't think that's just circumstance. We were also sent to London, which is about an hour and a half from Windsor, uh, where they have a pediatric um, children's hospital for several other specialists. And the first one we saw was a geneticist. And I'm sure the pediatrician told me we were seeing a geneticist, but. I didn't really comprehend that. So we go there, and again, she wants to go through all this history and all my pregnancies and the other children and Luke's birth, and we go through this, and then she says, okay, so the syndrome I think he has, um, I can't test for that until I do a couple other ones. And I heard that word, and I felt like she just punched me in the stomach. And I looked around, and I thought, well, she has to be talking to me because there's no one else here except for Eric. And I don't really know what else she said, but this word was just there. Syndrome. I thought, what is she talking about? Yes, clearly something's not right with Luke, but a syndrome? A couple of weeks later, we had our first appointment with the Children's Rehab Center in our um, city. Luke was eight months old and had not made, met any milestones for a child his age, and so We were being assessed for physio, OT, and speech. And, I mean, I knew he needed some therapy. That was clear by then, and so we were happy to go. And um, the group assessed him, and so they started to outline what we were going to start working on, and I thought, great. I thought, five, six months of therapy, he'll be good to go. (laughs) I think God knew I wasn't ready to know the full extent of what, was wrong with him So In my head, five, six months We don't have enough time to go into Everything that went on For the approximately Two and a half years that followed um, I'll just give you the highlights Really quickly We basically lived in a state of chaos Medical chaos Luke was sick all the time From the basics Like severe reflux, severe constipation. Sometimes he couldn't go for a week, and the screaming that followed was difficult. Um, He had constant ear infections. He was always on some kind of antibiotic. Um, We went from hospital visits to tests to doctor's offices. That was our life. Um, It was just like walking through this fog. Eric and I really didn't talk about it, not because we didn't want to. I think we just... This was just so crazy. I can't even explain it. Um, The seizures continued. They started him on some meds. But it usually takes time to figure out what's going to work. What works for one child doesn't work for another. Um, Luke had kidney stones, kidney infections, pneumonia. Therapy was ongoing but difficult because he was in so much pain. And he was little. He, he, He cried or slept, and he did not sleep very much. And that was one of the hardest things for me. Usually if I nursed him at night, I knew he would sleep for two hours. And after that, we walked the floors, we rocked, he cried, I cried. And that's when Satan really came to me. And I thought, God, what, what are you doing? I can't, use it. I can't do this. I can't handle this much. It's too hard. He's a burden. I just want a happy family. And somehow, God just said, why not you? For that question. When I said, why me? And he said, why not you? So I thought, okay. And then I said, you know what? I have a decision to make. I can be miserable, and my kids can, my other kids can grow up seeing this miserable person. Or I can just trust that God knows why, and I don't need to know why. And so I just purposed in my heart that I wanted to praise him, I wanted to serve him, and I knew somehow he would carry us through this. So finally, between the age of, around the age of two and a half, with the help of a very good team of doctors. They figured out a few of his issues. They got him on a better set of meds. And very slowly, he started to improve. Up to then, he was two and a half and hadn't reached 20 pounds. They had considered feeding tube, but I was able to nurse him and that kept him without a feeding tube. Um, and Slowly but surely, we had a little more good than bad. Um, He started to smile, which he hadn't been able to do because of the pain he was in. He started to make slow progress in therapy. He could sit by then. He was starting to try to scoot on the floor. And I just started to appreciate those little victories we had, and... I'm just so thankful for everybody else who made this journey possible. If it wasn't for those of our church friends, our family, who made us meals, who took my other kids, um, my parents, my mom retired early to help me, and Eric with Luke, um, we wouldn't be here. It was the hardest thing I can imagine, and yet there were so many blessings along the way. I've been praying so many times for my other kids that they wouldn't be resentful of the life that they have with their brother. And I see how happy they are just to help them to do something. And then I say, thank you, Lord. I don't know why God gave us Luke. And today he's six. He still is not verbal. Although he started taking his first consistent steps in March. Some of you may have seen him trucking along. Um, he He can't eat like you and I, but that's okay. But when he smiles and he tries to kiss me, that's all I need right now. And I just hope and pray that God could continue to Help me to raise him. And today I can say he's a joy in our family and not the burden that he felt like. And I, I feel terrible to say that, but that was the truth at the time. And for the sake of time, we want to go through just a few more slides that show specifically how God spoke to us. And one of them was that, as we both mentioned in different ways, Satan will try to tell us that God should just fix my problem. And sometimes we have to just look at the reality that life is hard, that God is more concerned about glorifying himself and changing me than removing the problem, that God has an eternal purpose he is fulfilling in the midst of my problems, that God wants to use my problems as part of his sanctifying process in my life, that no matter what problem I'm facing, God's grace is sufficient for me. And there's a song that says, sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes he calms his child. And so often when the storm of our situation was swirling around me, that's what I thought of. I said, just God, calm my heart. Um, Vanessa's going to share a couple scriptures that really spoke to her. What we
1: have here are a couple scriptures. When I was going through, when I finally got my diagnosis, I, again, wondered at certain times why it was that I had to go through this. It was hard not to look at other people my age and say, amazing, I just wish I could be that girl over there. You look at other people, you suddenly notice what you don't have. That's what Satan wanted me to do. And Satan also wanted to isolate me and make me think that I was the only one going through this, that everything was spiraling out of control and you have every reason to be scared. And I remember going through my chemotherapy regimen and I opened up to scripture one evening and opened up to Isaiah chapter 40 and God basically needed to tell me that who he was. And it says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? God was basically telling me that he is the one in charge and that nothing touches me or affects me without his knowledge and without his allowance. And I had to understand that. Because when you're a child of God, Satan can throw anything at you. And if we're weak, we'll see what he's throwing at us. But if we trust in God, God says, I have you and I know exactly what you're going through. And you will only fall and you will only crumble and ultimately die if I allow it. Satan can throw his best at us. God's bigger. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Again, God was saying, Vanessa, I can move the heart of kings. Do you realize how powerful I am? I'm everything. I want to be your world. You just have to trust in me. And that became the foundation. That became the thread, what underpinned absolutely everything. uh, And just gave me joy from one day to the next.
2: Philippians 4:6. We all know it very well. Um, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. Um, About a year into Luke's life, we were traveling to Ohio, and on the way home, we were with my parents. We stopped at a Cracker Barrel, and if many of you know, they have the little gift store with their um, restaurant, and We didn't know, but my mom bought a plaque for us, and she gave it to us on the way home, and in big letters it says, I will not worry, and this scripture was underneath. And probably the next day, because we got home late, Eric pinned it on our wall, and I don't know how many, especially nights, when I was trying to calm Luke down, I would go to that wall and just read that, just read it over and over. And the part that hit me was, yes, I was to make my request, no one unto God, but it says, with thanksgiving... And that was the hard part, so often. But I said it over and over, and God did provide. And in Stephanie's situation, that also was
1: something that spoke to me ironically. Same thing. What I I struggled with was being thankful. How can you be thankful for a cancer diagnosis? How can you be thankful for being holed up in a hospital room for five days straight? And... What I had decided to do was keep um, not a journal, but a record of everything I was thankful for that day. If I was not just going to be thankful for the actual gifts God gave me, but for the blessings of how He got me through the actual trial itself, I learned to be thankful for small things. Thankful that it wasn't pouring rain when I had bucket loads of luggage to take from my hospital room to the car. That's a blessing. Thankful to get through a day where I didn't have a migraine. That's a blessing. I'm blessed because of what God got me through. Just not, what, not just what he gives me materially, but those tough times that
2: he gets me through. Um, the other scriptures are well known, too. For the sake of time, we're just going to keep going. Um, obviously, prayer is something we both touched on and is so vital for us. It's our lifeline to the Heavenly Father. And whether it's through our personal prayer time, finding a prayer partner, prayer as a church body, prayer within the community... It's all vital, Um, and I know I've prayed all my life, but through one experience, prayer just became so real to me. Um, Before one of Luke's hospitalizations, I was in the ER, and I had called Sister Linda Yon to tell her I couldn't teach that night. She would call my students for me, and so after hours of just not knowing what was going to happen, being tired and just thinking what is coming i just felt this calm this this peace and i just thought thank you lord for just helping me and i later found out and i happened to look at the clock i don't know why god knows i needed to see that time because a few days later i found out that sister linda had started a prayer chain right at that time she just started calling people she said they're in the hospital again they don't know what's wrong just start praying and that was just such a important thing for me to just to feel that god answered that prayer and i thought on that many times after prayer for me one quick story um i was supply
1: teaching prior to my diagnosis What I didn't know was that God was preparing my heart already for what I was about to encounter. I just didn't realize He was preparing my heart. As a substitute teacher, about seven or eight months prior to my diagnosis, I encountered a little boy in one of the classes I was teaching in. That morning, the teachers warned me Vanessa, he's an incredibly difficult child. We need to give you the heads up. He comes from a broken home. He's kind of fallen through the cracks. He's angry. He's bitter. He feels completely lost. He's going to have severe behavior issues. He's just a lost little boy. He has an incredibly broken home, people coming and going from his life um, constantly. He didn't know who was a constant in his life and who wasn't. So I come and meet this little boy as he comes into the classroom. Sure enough, he never smiled the entire morning, had a scowl across his face, and um, pretty much frowned the whole morning, didn't want to listen to me ever. In the afternoon, the children all separated, and they all went off to read their own books, and he didn't want to read books. So I chose one for him and handed it to him and said, Here, you can read this book. And he was sitting on the carpet. I went to walk away and watched the book whiz past me and land a few feet in front of me on the floor. I calmly picked up the book, put it on the table, and turned around to him and said, No problem. When you're ready, you come and you take this book and you can read it, but only once you're ready. I let him cool down on the carpet, and he sat on the carpet and just pouted and... Refused to comply Circled the classroom A couple minutes later came back to him And I said, okay I said, Do you want me to read to you? No I said, okay, would you like to read to me? No Would you like to draw a picture? No And then he flops down on the carpet He hadn't moved from that carpet In what was probably going on 20 minutes So I knelt down next to him And I said, okay I said, look, did your head hurt? He's like, no Does your tummy hurt? No. I said, does your heart hurt? And at at that moment, he couldn't give me an answer. He shook, his whole body shook. He was so broken. And I'm in a public school. I cannot pray for him at that moment, except in my head. And I just watched him cover his eyes. He could not look at me. And at that moment, I thought, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for this boy, not just for today. I will pray for him indefinitely because he needs more than prayers for one day. So I told him, I said, look, I'm here. If your heart hurts, I am here. And you can tell me anything at any time. I am here for you. You just speak, and I will listen. You talk, I'll listen. That was enough for him to get through the rest of the day. He perked up, and he actually started to interact with the rest of the kids and started to smile when he knew that for once there was someone on his side who actually wanted to listen to him. I went home, started praying, started supplying in other, um, other classrooms, thinking you know, God, I'm praying for this little boy that you would miraculously work in his life, but I have no clue how because he's from a broken home. Um, He clearly has no access to the things that I had as a child. How are you going to work? But I prayed a couple times a week when I thought of him, and I thought, Gord, God, I just want you to raise him up to be this powerful man of God. I want him to be a Christian, and I have no idea how you're going to do it in such a broken, hopeless situation Now, little did I know, a few weeks or a few months later, after praying for him on and off, that I end up back in his classroom. So I am circulating in the classroom, the kids all sit down to write in their journals. He sits down at a table next to a little girl, and he starts to write in his journal in the morning, as do the other kids. And as I come over to his table, and I'm watching him and this little girl, he stops, pauses, and looks at the little girl. And he says you know God is everywhere, don't you? And it caught me completely off guard, coming from this little boy. And he said, yes, God is everywhere. God is even next to me right now. And he looks up at me and says, Miss Taba, is God right here next to me? I was floored. I could not believe what was coming out of this little boy's mouth. And I said, yes, of course he is. That was one of the most powerful ways that God showed me that, Vanessa, you have no idea how, but I'm raising this boy up as you asked me to. I still don't know how it is that he even knows about God, coming from his broken, hopeless situation. But somehow God is reaching this little boy, and I am continuing to pray. Because I realize that even though I doubted that God would hear my prayers and how he could work through such an incredibly hopeless situation, God proved me wrong and said, I can do anything. So that ended up being actually a catalyst and that really pushed me through my entire experience with going through cancer because God said, if I can do that for a little boy in such a broken, hopeless situation, just imagine what I can do for you who believes. So I learned because of that to have hope in a God that is far bigger than any situation that Steph or I find ourselves in.
2: Another way God allows us to get through these struggles, um, we have to remember to reach out to others, whether it's through a mentor, a confidant, family, friends, even professional help. Um, I spent a couple years talking to a counselor through the therapy center Luke is at to just help me sort through all these things that were so new to me, medically speaking, and just to... to To make sense of some of it and even with our oldest son the anxiety he had for luke we were able to work through them with this counselor and it's just an encouragement that we shouldn't be afraid to look in that direction sometimes when it's needed another way we found encouragement um was through i got connected with a sister in kitchener who had a son with a severe seizure disorder and just through talking with her it was such a blessing um just to know someone else who was walking this road, um, who understood what I was feeling and the, and the frustrations I had, um, and then songs were another huge encouragement for Eric and I. we were both musical; everyone knows that, I guess. Um, but just it was just such a big help. And I'm not going to read these, but the one, the point of this song, really, the first one is that God sees the rainbow when we see only clouds. And that was just such an encouragement to me that I don't know the purpose, but God does, and he knows the end, and he's going to help me get through the storm. Another one was I can trust Jesus. And the first time I heard this was during one of Luke's hospitalizations. I went home to get some more clothes for the hospital, and my cousin had... Music playing and all of a sudden the song came on and I heard the words I can trust Jesus. I can trust Jesus. He never once has failed to meet my needs He is my strong tower strength in my weakest hour. I can trust Jesus. He takes care of me And here I am driving bawling and I'm thinking you should give me this song. I need to listen to this It was just I needed that encouragement and songs was one big way another way was The plaque I told you my mom bought us is now evolved into a wall of encouraging plaques that people have bought for us, that we've bought. And another one says, it's not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Just knowing that God will carry us through. He doesn't promise that the situation per se may be taken away, but he does promise that he will carry us through. We'll just
1: continue on for the sake of time. I think it'll be perfect. We're, these are the last couple of slides that we wanted to leave you with. So,
2: Above all else, as was quoted earlier in, in a quote, at the end of your life, one of three things will happen to your heart. It will grow hard, it will be broken, or it will be tender. We have a choice whether we will trust our Almighty God or whether we will wither into despair and discouragement and God wants what's best for us and our joy should be because of him and not our situation. And that's something we've both learned in a, in a big way. Absolutely. Right here we have a quote. It says, The love of
1: God shows us that God alone bridges the distance between him and us, enabling us to see this world through Calvary. Calvary. If you don't see it that way, then you will never see it his way. And the threads of the masterpiece he is weaving of your life will always pull away from the design. One thing I always knew when I was in the hospital bed receiving my chemotherapy treatment is that as a Christian fighting for my life, I was better off than any healthy person who didn't have Christ. And I realized that what Christ did for all of us on the cross underpins absolutely everything In our life, there's no joy without Christ's resurrection. There's no joy in anything without the gospel, the full gospel. Another quote we have from the same book that I actually had been reading um, throughout my treatment, the book called The Grand Weaver. It says, Once you take these three steps, allow God to make your heart tender, strengthen your mind through faith, and make the cross the aortic valve of your life. The result follows. You see God's pattern in you and become the instrument of consolation for those who hurt. God wasn't just working in Steph's life and my life to change us. He also needed to use us to hopefully help others so that when Satan tries to isolate each and every one of you, and you wonder why certain things happen, you realize that you're not alone, that Satan really is the father of all lies, and that there really is an awesome God who's in control. And at the end of the day... Um, The cross is what matters. We have a quote here that says, and this is the one that we felt was just so important and perfectly sums everything up. The single most important thread in working through your disappointments is that your heart and mind ponder and grasp what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. Either your heart and mind will be shaped by that reality or they will be misshapen by false utopias. There is no pattern without the cross. There is no good news without it. That is what the gospel is all about. A false utopia is anything that we put our hopes in that is other than Jesus Christ. A false utopia can be something good, like marriage. Marriage won't solve your problems. It will not fill your heart, that deepest need in your heart. It can only be filled by Christ. At the end of the day, if it becomes an idol, it, um, it's nothing. You're still bankrupt without Christ. If you go back to all those problems that we had, whether it's marriage problems, job loss, children that are struggling and you have to watch your children struggle, whether it's dealing with issues with singlehood, the pressures of how you're going to support yourself, feelings of loneliness, whatever it might be, imagine that if you had all of those things in a perfect life, but you knew that you were going to go to hell or that you would just be completely lost, no eternity with God. Could you ever enjoy a house wonderful children, any of those blessings. Without Christ and what he did on the cross underpinning absolutely everything, there's no joy in anything else. I'm happy, and Steph is happy first and foremost, because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. If you take that away, there's nothing you could give me in this world, no husband, no house, no career, no perfect children that would ever make me happy if I know that at the end of the day I'm not spending eternity with Christ because I have no hope and no eternity without Christ first and foremost. So that is what we wanted to leave you with, is that the ultimate good news is what Jesus Christ did. That's what carries us through, and we want you to know that that's what can carry each and every one of you through as well. And that is our form. so thank you all very much. I'd
3: like to thank you. For- Absolutely. I really don't need okay. that thing. They scare me. Um,
2: me too, but...
3: When, when when, you had this long list of emotions and feelings, uh, the most destructive in my life was not on that list. It's bitterness. make a long story short, uh, the story of our third child was a carbon copy of the first half of your uh, expression. Uh, but the baby died. And I became so bitter, and I didn't have trouble not praying. I I, I, I had I did pray. And it was the same prayer for months. And it was this, God, if this is your recompense for service, God pity the people who do nothing. And I, I wouldn't even say amen. And this went on for months. And I, I tell people, I'm twice a debtor. The Lord saved me from my sins, and he saved me the second time from my bitterness. And it's interesting. It was the one of our children that finally broke the ice to this ice was Just huge. Sorry. Sorry. Poppy was two years old, two and a half, when Stevie was born and died. Everybody waited for the little brother. And as time went on afterwards, we had a friend who had a dog that had puppies. And uh, he thought maybe... It helped the kids get over this missing little brother with a puppy. And and, and it did until the puppy ran out on the street and was killed. And I remember Leona went up one night, as she always did, to say prayers with Lynn, who was five, and Bobby, who was was two and a half. And she came down kind of teary eyed. She she said, When I went to Bobby's bed, he said, I'm mad at God. I'm not praying. Not tonight, I'm not... I said, why not? Well, oh, he said, first God takes my brother, and then he takes my puppy, right? Half hour passed, and he calls from upstairs, and he said, Mom went back up. He said, Mommy, I, I really do want to pray. And she said, what well, changed your mind? And he said, the, the little boy was Stephen. And he said, if Stephen wanted a dog. I'd rather give, a God gave in mine than anybody else's. Bitterness is horribly destructive. And, and, and I obviously had much less faith than the two of you did. But it taught me something. It taught me that nothing that I have or own, even my children, are mine. They're God's. And then the little guy uh, that, that is not served a purpose in our married life it was really wonderful leona became very very ill they thought she was going to die i didn't know where to bury him so i buried him as close to home as i could it was a cemetery not far away and uh you know when we would have a tiff or uh, things were rubbing a little bit between us all we need to do is go to that spot where a little bit of both of us was and it was all God does it always right. We just don't think so when we're going through it. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you for that. He definitely has a greater plan. It's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. It's really hard to trust his heart, but we have to. He's our father. He loves us more than our earthly fathers ever could. We have to trust that he has a purpose for everything. Thank you.